I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple. Lola Adeshoye wears many hats. She's a social and political writer, commentator, broadcaster, singer-songwriter. Lola has without doubt harnessed the power of communication through her work in media and the arts to bring awareness to important social, political and cultural issues, no doubt underpinned by the unique perspective from her own personal story as a first-generation Afro-Caribbean, British-born daughter of Nigerian immigrants. Lola's opinions and analysis have been published in a vast number of leading international news outlets, including The Guardian, The Economist, The New Statesman, Huffington Post, and many more. She also provides commentary for American and international TV and radio, and was formerly the founding deputy editor of NBC's African-American news site, thegrio.com. Lola has been described as one of Nigeria's top 10 wordsmiths and one of 11 sharp black commentators in America. Lola also talks to students at schools and colleges, both in the US and internationally, and advises brands and businesses on diversity and inclusion issues. Lola, thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. We're thrilled to be talking to you about your journey today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, your various hats are really impressive and fascinating and I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about your career journey so far and any particular highlights along the way. I think uh, you know my Nigerian dad is still like what on earth is she doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> why is she not a lawyer or an accountant or something like that? Um, you know, it has been an interesting sort of career path and I think I've been very much guided by generally what moves me and um, what, you know, makes me tick. And I realise that there's lots of stuff in the world, people saying, oh, follow your passion and other people saying, oh, that's like, you know, nonsense ideas. But for me, my problem was that I was always very good at everything. So like in my GCSEs, I got seven A's and three A stars. So I wasn't one that could say, okay, well, I got a C here and it's, you know, F there. And I could actually choose very easily amongst subjects that I wasn't good at because actually I was kind of good at everything. So what I did was I said, okay, what is it I actually really enjoy of all these subjects where I'm getting sort of straight A's? Um, what do I enjoy the most? So I could see quite clearly, I was very good at languages. I was very good at music. Um, I was very good in communication and, and arts, basically. So that's kind of what I decided to go into, I suppose. But my driving force as I, over time was always like, what, am I, what do I care about as a human being? Um, and what I cared about as a black woman, you know, even, very early on was like being black and what it meant to be black my parents are immigrants you know what that meant for me in the world um I don't know why that was a thing but that was a thing for me you know so um my career path I started off in the music business and I went into the media but it's always been around um diversity blackness inclusion um having other perspectives and bringing those into the space that's pretty much I think what my career has been based on although it's um you know come out in different ways but that for me I think has been the main thing 
it's fascinating and and it sounds like the power of storytelling is particularly important to you are there particular voices or mentors or people along the way who've particularly nurtured your voice in particular you know I, I I've always been an avid reader I was a very avid reader from very early on so I think that shaped me in a way um you know I grew up when Nelson Mandela and apartheid was happening and so there was a lot to do with people of color in South Africa obviously South Africa is a you know originally you know black place but so anyway voices um yeah I mean Shakespeare shaped me you know um Philip Larkin as a poet shaped me Maya Angelou shaped me Toni Morrison um I've always loved to read and so I think I've been very very influenced by everybody that I've read um because I studied English and English language and then at university actually when I started I did Italian and Spanish so Dante mm. yes basically anyone who's a brilliant wordsmith is somebody that shaped my view on the world communication and language to me are tools for people to um communicate cross-culturally and um yeah all of those people have shaped me mm. I mean those are some really impressive names and you, um, you emigrated to the US and you're now a permanent resident here. Yeah. Um, tell us about your notion of home and you talked a bit about your background, but what does home and belonging mean? Are you, do you feel home in New York now? How do you bring your identity together? Uh, it's such a good question. I've thought about this so much, you know, what's home? Um, home is definitely New York at this point. I've been here for most of my adult life really I was thinking about this the other day I'm like okay I came when I was 27 so I'm now 40 and a half and I've been here for 14 years which means that I've been here for most of my adult life um but I'm very British you know I can't I can't uh escape that and I wouldn't want to um there are very large parts of sort of Englishness that shape my identity but I'm also very Nigerian and it's kind of weird because I didn't grow up in Nigeria but you know Nigerian parents I sometimes hear a Nigerian voice in my head funnily enough when certain things happen so I guess it's you know I'm multicultural but definitely uh, New York and the US are home for now um, England is my first home America is my spiritual home as I call it and Africa is my ancestral home that's how how I will describe it. Wow, that's a that's an amazing way of describing it, and <laughs> uh, and amazing to have those all those cultural influences come together. And and what is it about New York in particular that you were attracted to when you were thinking about coming out here? And and was it was it a job that brought you out here, or was it just a desire to live in America? What were the influences? Well, I came to New York first when I was 16 on family holiday and I don't know just something happened to me when I was on the trip you know I felt like I grew and when I went back home I wasn't the same person and so I think even then I New York had some kind of hold on me and then I came back in my gap year I spent three months in America in my gap year so all my friends were going to Thailand and China and like sort of exciting places and I was like, no, I'm going to go to America. And they're like, why are you going to America? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I like it there. I'm just going to go. So I came here and I spent a month in California, a month in Florida, a month in New York, rented an apartment um, with my friend. And um, 
I don't know, just something about the energy here just really, you know, got to me. I met a guy who I thought was like the most exciting guy I'd ever met at that time. And, um, you know, started coming back every year after that uh, until eventually at some point I was like, oh, well, let me go and see, you know, what's happening over New York. Maybe me and the guy can get together and maybe there'll be opportunities for me. And that's kind of what happened with the, um, the work thing. I wasn't really anticipating staying here. I'd saved some money. I was blogging at the time. I was, you know, mm-hmm. transitioning from music into media. I, I had the idea that I would want to do something more than what I was doing in music business. Um, and came and I was blogging and then Obama was running for office and it was just a very exciting time. And so the guy that I'd met in my gap year, who I was still in contact with, he had a bunch of friends here who um, were doing really interesting things in sort of black media and they were making documentaries and they were talking about, you know, like just, it was just such an exciting time. And I just thought, oh, I have to find a way, you know, to stay. And then, um, a friend of mine who was reading my blog said, oh, you, you know, you're a very good writer. Maybe you can write for some publications. And again, before the days of social media and everyone having sort of an opinion, um, put me in touch with The Guardian. I was able to get a, a visa. And basically that was kind of what happened. So it wasn't premeditated per se. It was just sort of me on some random like chasing a man and like trying to see what could happen in my life (laughs) if I pursued some inner calling that I had no idea exactly what it was and here I am 14 years later yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's brilliant I love the romantic undertone (laughs) yeah unfortunately that situation was very sour and I will not even talk about that but it started off well. <laughs> um, and you, you talked about your work in the media and I'm, I'm really interested in your views of how um, media outlets have, have changed over the years. I mean, particularly around reporting of race and diversity issues and, and you're at the forefront of that. I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts on how, you know, what, what have been the shifts over the period that you've worked in the, the media industry? Um, my gosh, I mean, you know, so many, um, like I said, when I started, there was not a lot of opinion based stuff actually. And then social media came into the fore and then suddenly, whoo, everybody had a voice and opinion. There was a sort of democratization of opinion, which I think is actually a very healthy thing, but I do think it's had, um, somewhat of a corrosive effect on the media because, um, you know, what sells is often what's the most salacious and what's the most titillating and what the, you know, what headlines you can get. And I think that has somewhat um, corrupted to some degree, like what people say and, and the way they say it, which I think is unfortunate because when you're dealing with opinion and you're trying to inform people, I think you have to have informed opinion you know you have to have things that are well validated and as we saw with the last administration you know you get into this murky area of alternative facts so to speak where you cannot distinguish um not not even fact from fiction but even opinion from just propaganda 
and that's very very problematic um to me so i think there have been massive shifts that have happened over the past um you know 10 to 15 years that are not like even necessarily um just privy to the media industry i think any the industry that's been touched by technology actually has had to deal with some of these things and so you know that gives an opportunity for the future to look at how you can sort of rectify it but when you're dealing with information and you're dealing with places where people have great amounts of trust in media authority I think it can be very problematic um you know so I, I do think bit, there's been more like voices of color and stuff like that which I think is important, but I don't know. I just think it's a very difficult time. Obviously I came from the music business. I saw the same shifts that happened in music actually before they got to the media. Um, so I kind of could anticipate some of these things, but I think it's time for the media to really, um, you know, really start looking at like what voices we give credence to and, and trust and respect and, the power of information and how important it is for shaping people's minds um, mm. beyond even say, you know, just what people think. Like people really do give great credence to what they read and what they see and what they hear. And that's an, a massive responsibility mm. that the media should never take for granted. So yeah, lots of shifts. I'm very intrigued as to what the next sort of 10 years or so and beyond will hold, but yeah, so much has changed in the time. Mm. Right, and um, quite a lot of people refer to the concept of post-truth, don't they? Where, you know, people have sort of almost, you know, you believe what you want to believe, you find the facts to back up what you, you know, what you want to um, to say. Yeah. Um, and you're right, that can be incredibly, um, incredibly damaging. Um, do you think social media has, has sort of proliferated that? I mean, in a way, social media is great as well because it gives people new voices and you can reach new audiences. But I imagine actually from where you sit, that can probably also be quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, social media, technology in general, the way that we have dealt with it in the past 10 years has completely changed our lives. And social media has dramatically changed the whole, you know, scenario, everything whatever industry you're in, social media has changed it, for better and for worse. Um, I think that the people who were very gung-ho about the sort of creation of social media did not necessarily think about what some of the downsides may be, and that's fine, you know. Um, but yeah, post-truth, What? well, what is post-truth? I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean to have alternative facts? I mean, the fact that we can even use those phrases tells you something, you know, like, mm. it means that people can create their own alternate realities beyond truth, right? As in beyond truth is really lies. I mean, like there's no other way to kind of say it, but when you're dealing with, um, things like journalism and media that people actually get their sense of the world from, that's so problematic, you know? Um, I mean, I, we see now that uh, social media entities are really trying to get some kind of um, hold on what people say and, uh, you know, the factual nature of them. Um, mm. And I think that's a good thing. I think there's going to be a lot more filter, 
filtration, curation and, and editorship as we go down the line. But there's no doubt that mm. social media has had such a dramatic impact on many things, including political views, ideologies and so on and so forth. Mm. Do you think there's a, um, a greater role that government should play in, um, I don't want to say regulating the internet, um, but, but it's something that the UK government has been thinking about for a while and talking about online harms in particular and just interested in your thoughts on, you know, whether you think government should be doing more in this space. Sometimes government proliferates the problem. This is a very, that's a very difficult one um, because, you know, again, where do you draw the line between regulation and censorship? Mm. I would rather actually government has less of a role, actually, now I think about it. Mm. Um, but I do think there's something to be said for, you know, again, like how much power do social media and technology entities have? How much power does the government have? None of those entities, to me, should have uh, such a dramatic amount of power that they can shift and shape how people think. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you regulate that exactly, but ultimately, whether it's the government giving out propaganda or, or you know, F-Book or, you know, whoever giving out propaganda um, or being entities for them, it ultimately is like kind of the same thing at the end of the day. So I think that's a very tricky one. I would rather the government doesn't weighed in so heavily but I do think that we cannot underestimate the power that these um, technology companies have I just don't think I just it would be so unrealistic at this point given everything that we've seen to underestimate how much power they have but we also sh shouldn't give all the power to the governments but then that also suggests that you know people are willing to be honest about what they have and the power they have and what damage it can do potentially and say okay we we kind of could do with a bit of our own regulation mm -hmm. so it's a true that's a very tricky one mm -hmm. you're listening to brits and the big apple and my guest today is uh lola adeshoye lola you've been a vocal and active voice on american society and politics and particularly on american race relations and I was interested in your view on the current state of affairs on race relations here. It feels like we've gone through a watershed moment on the back of George Floyd's killing and the recent trial. And um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on what, what's next now and what's the conversation that we need to be having. I think uh, the conversation is that nothing has changed, really. And and the work still needs to be done. So it's great, there's awareness. I think we've reached a point of awareness that maybe has not happened before, even in history. Um, but now this is the time to capitalize on that and to just keep on doing the work. So if we're in the business of anti-racism, global anti-racism, that means that all of our institutions, all of our structures, all of our systems, we must continue to look through that lens. Just because there's been one conviction of a one police officer doesn't mean that everything has, you know, come to an end. Because in America and around the world, we've seen these sorts of things happen so many times before. 
that the one victory is fantastic, but it's not the end. And until we reach the end, which is a world without racism, as far as I'm concerned, we must continue. So that's where I stand. Um, we've been, you know, this is this is a hundreds year old project and it's not going to end, you know, in a year or a month or 10 years. So we have work to do for the future. Our children, our grandchildren will still probably be doing this kind of work. Um, but yeah, we must continue to um, talk about, preach, work in anti-racism and make sure that at some point anti-racism and a world without racism becomes our reality. Do you think we're asking ourselves the right questions to really shine that mirror and you know learn and grow? I think I think honestly at this point it's okay so wherever you are whatever space you're in you know to look around and to say who's in this space what space do I occupy? And I'm not talking about like guilt because I've had people call me and say, well, you know, like I have white privilege and da, 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 and I can't do anything about it. That to me comes from a space of guilt. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like problem solving and so being a solutions orientated approach to mm -hmm. the world. There are some things, for example, like I'm able-bodied, right? So I don't necessarily think when I get in the subway that I can't get down the stairs, but I lived with a disabled person for a year. And that made me think of like, wow, this person can't just jump out of bed and get anywhere actually, to be honest, without having to think about his every move. So trying to think about what is life like for people outside of my space. So as a you know heterosexual woman, what would it be like, you know, whereby I'm living in a world surrounded by people who like are pertaining to me as a heterosexual woman? Like, what would it be like to be, say, gay and not be able to see myself reflected? It's kind of being able, it's it's a it's a sort of intellectual effort. Mm. Taking yourself out of your own body and trying to imagine what it'd be like to be somebody else living in your space and that's actually hard work and then to try and sort of imagine like picture the world from that perspective mm. and that I think is a very very difficult thing to do and I'm not saying that I necessarily even know how to do that but I just think that's the kind of work we need to do um, is to to really imagine beyond our own world. If I was a black woman, if I was a white woman, if I was a disabled person, if I was a gay, you know, what would this look like for me? And that's that's a, a sort of mental work that mm. um, I think we're not used to doing, but I think we have to start doing it. I really do. <laughs> I think that's the only way we can we can you know, get past some of these things is to think about, think outside of ourselves. You know, empathy, I guess, is yeah. is that ability to place yourself in a someone else's shoes. Yeah. What might it be like? I don't necessarily know, but let me try and think about it. You know, that's what I think. Yeah. 
that's an incredibly powerful challenge. And as you say, it's it's it it reminded me of that classic phrase, you know, you 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 kind of need to try and walk in someone's shoes to fully understand. Um, and actually, you're right. The first step is just to try and seek first to understand, and put yourself in that position. And I guess too many times we all put our head down and you know get on with our own lives, but that's not going to help. Yeah, you know. So I'm honestly I'm black, right? But I went to private school my whole life. My parents earned good money. I didn't grow up. I grew up in I mean in inner city London, but not really quite. If you know what I mean. Mm. There are lots of things that I haven't experienced. People have told me stuff. I'm like, wow, like I can't even imagine that, you know. But like. I feel like I have to try and imagine it you know I have to try and do that sort of work and and living in spaces where like I go to the bodega and I love going to my bodega but it annoys me that they only sell bananas which are like old and crusty like I don't understand is there no other fruit in this neighborhood why do you only sell these things <laughs> like what's happening here and then all the other stuff is Snickers bars and this and that da, da, da. Now, you know, but I just think, imagine if you were somebody and you only had X amount of money, you can only go to the store and buy certain types of food. What are you going to buy? You're going to buy the nonsense. And, and you spend quite a bit of your time um, uh, working with businesses and individuals and schools. Can you tell us a bit more about your efforts there? And particularly in, in the world of business, which is something that we're focusing on as well at the consulate, it feels like we're moving past um, the sort of surface level conversation about the C-suite and, you know, having more people at board level. And it feels like we're getting to a richer place where actually people want to understand how they can change their whole organization's DNA. But what more do you think we can do to actually make that stick? and do it in a way that is meaningful from your experience yeah it's quite interesting because you know there's the there's the desire and there's the um willingness and there's the implementation mm -hmm. and so implementation is always difficult because it's like building house you can have your plans and it's like oh it's going to look like this and it's going to be great but then you deal with like the roaches and the pigeons that have you know built a, a nest in front of your house or whatever stuff you have to deal with right so when we're dealing with the implementation we're dealing with the actual real world stuff and all the crap that we come up against and a lot of that crap is just our own human insecurities and fears and all of that good stuff and that's something that when we're thinking about um ideas and and ideals it's very easy to overlook so what i love right now is that we are all in this space of change people want to have change um, but then in terms of making the change happen change management when you're dealing with human beings is complicated because most human beings don't even like change like we don't even like change in our in our own lives and I'll attest to that. So, you know, you wouldn't have change in your organization that's going to make change in the whole world. Like, yeah, we're, even if the ideal is noble, we have to get past all of that stuff first, right? So, you know, how do you, I think you have to, people have to really believe, number one, in what they're, um, what 
what they're what the change is for you can't just tell people like oh you know like we just care about this and that's what your organization should do i think each person that's in the organization really has to believe that it's, it's something that's worthwhile something that they personally actually believe in and if they don't personally believe in it they maybe should not be in that space you know like and that sounds harsh but there might be other places they can go to that you know are amenable to them um and also we have to know these things take time and so it's not a year it's not even three years we're talking 10-year plans um and that during that time they're going to be ups and downs and we're all going to go through things and we're going to be challenged and confronted by things and it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person it just means that it's there's change so i think we have to have the goals but we have to have the humanity that goes with it um which is just that change is difficult and mm. uh, it takes time mm. so you know, i think that's, that's what i think that's a very realistic but encouraging uh, way of looking at it. And you're right, you know, these things do take time, don't they? It takes several iterations of recruitment cycles to get to the exactly. point where you feel comfortable that your processes are the right ones. I can totally, uh, totally exactly. see that. Yeah, because um, people say, well, in a year's time, we're going to have like, you know, 70% BIPOC. And it's like, realistically, you're not. Like, this is not real. It's not going to happen like that. I mean, it. I like the sentiment and I like the ideal behind it, but realistically, it's not. And 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 every change brings with it its own challenges too, right? So even if you do have that, then what? You know. So we have to be looking at long term plans, long term visions, and how we roll things out over time and managing the change changes and shifts. And I think that's probably the more practical way to do it. Mm. Loda it's been fascinating and incredibly challenging um listening to you and, and talking to you um before we finish for, for for those who would want to follow in your footsteps who have a voice and want to um contribute to making society and the world a better place what what advice would you give in terms of how to take that voice forward I think have the courage of your convictions and feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, it's not necessarily about being fearless. It's just, you know, overcoming fear and um, allow yourself to be human and to know that you're part of a, a much bigger picture and that we all have a part to play in the human story. And your part is as valuable as anybody else's. Lola Adeshoye, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.